How's everybody doing this morning? It's good to see your bright faces today and have a little sunshine. Maybe we're getting so much rain lately. How are you feeling, Alex? It's good to see you, brother. You doing all right? <laughs> no, I'm used to that. I'm used to that. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking. Because he had a he had a uh, procedure there, a little plastic surgery on the nose. <laughs> So, guys, this morning we are going to jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to read a few verses from there. I'm just giving you a hard time, Alex. I love you, man. (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, we're going to jump into um, actually a a little bit of a continuation. For those of you who were here with us last week, we're going to um, kind of dive in and pick up a little bit where uh, we left off. But first, let's get the context. So in 2 Corinthians 5, we're going to read verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 11, where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, We are away from the Lord. And verse 7, For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and I would, would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Let's say a word of prayer together. Lord, I thank you for giving us your word. Thank you so much for revealing your heart, your character, your intention, your plans for us through your living word. And this morning, as we dive into it, I pray that you would help us a little bit more to understand it, um, and not just, to, not just to grasp it, but really for that thing to kind of take root in our spirit and shape us more into your character, Lord, that who you are would be truly who, who we are. So we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this morning, the question that I want to pose for each of us is this. What does your faith look like? And for each one of us, we likely have a different answer from the person sitting next to you or across the room. What does your faith look like? I'm going to start by telling you a story of a man by the name of Jim Elliott. Some of you might have heard that name before, but Jim was um, a young man raised out in the western side of the United States, um, out in Portland, Oregon, and... Uh, when he was raised out there, he was raised into a Christian home and loved the Lord since, since childhood. And even in his, in his young and early years, he felt like a call, a drawing to be in the ministry, to do some kind of work uh, for the Lord. So when he finished high school, he ended up going to Wheaton College, getting trained um, in the scriptures. And when he finished Bible college, he then went to a linguistics school and in a linguistic school, he was learning how to, how to um, write and learn foreign languages to be able to communicate 
better. Now, when he was in that linguistic school, one of his professors there uh, informed him about Indians, a, a tribe of Indians living in Ecuador called the Aucas. The Aucas, that, that was a, a word um, in their language which means savages. And this Indian tribe was completely unreached, an un- unreached people group from any outsiders. They, complete, they lived in the rainforest in Ecuador, and no outsiders could come and, and kind of penetrate their settlement, their way of life. And they lived very, very um, kind of like early age people, like l- literally with whittling sticks and just eating off of the trees and, and from what they would grow but they were also known for their violence and for, for being extremely dangerous. So no one could even try to go and, and pursue them because they would reject any outside world. Anything that was foreign, unknown, they were not comfortable with it and they would shut it out. Well, something about this just drew Jim's attention to it. And he immediately was interested and he wanted to learn more about this um, and even felt this growing kind of desire to bring the gospel to these people who were so quick to reject anything from the outside world, never mind a message that was completely foreign to them. So he began to pray into this, and he began to call up some friends and ask if anybody would be willing to take this challenge on with him and and travel down there. And he found a friend who was, was willing. And at 25 years old, he ended up flying down to Ecuador at like a base camp and began training there into the culture and that specific language of the people there. Here's a picture of of Jim there. Jim's on the right. That's Jim Elliott. The guy in the middle is his buddy, uh, Pete Fleming. And on the left is, uh, his name is Ed McCauley, two of his buddies that went down there and took this challenge on together. The reason I mentioned Jim's life to you this morning is because the way that he lived was basically a picture, I think, of the scripture that we read here in 2 Corinthians. It's about really having this eternal perspective, knowing that the days that were allotted here on the earth are so many. We're, we're all allotted so many days, some more than others. And then when these days are finished, now the eternity outside of this world begins. Jim lived with this eternal perspective. And that's what the scripture is talking about. He's talking about that as really, as believers, as Christians, really, we are, we are on this journey traveling to another place, traveling to a destination that outlasts anything um, like this broken world. It outlasts this broken world. And the, so the sense is the way that we are to conduct our lives, that we make decisions The compass, if you will, that we use to navigate this world is not synced up with anything that we can see or touch, but our compass is synced up with the Holy Spirit, with the unseen, because we're moved, like it says, by faith and not by what we see and what we perceive our circumstances to be. One quote that Jim is famous for is this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He was focused on his end destination. He was determined to live by faith and not by sight. And so for him, 
taking the gospel message of hope to a people that had never heard such a, such a message, that was an opportunity. That was an opportunity that he had to go and be an ambassador for Christ and share with them the faith that empowered him, that he lived by. He lived with eternity in view. And this now, for all of us as believers, this is how we all have the ability to live, with eternity in view. Like, like what you're facing today has, bears no weight on tomorrow. What you face today doesn't determine what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or whatever happens today. There will always be another, another day. I love how one person said it. He said, as, as Christians, we know that we're going to live forever, so what's the rush? You never run out of time. Our culture wants us to kind of keep rushing along because we, we want to get things done, we want to accomplish, we want to produce, but we've got all the time in the world. And so productivity isn't what drives us, but it's living by faith in God that moves us. This is what moves us. 2 Corinthians tells us that we have been given the Spirit of God as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And that Spirit isn't just a deposit that stays in our pocket. This is the Holy Spirit that now lives in us and moves with us with power, a supernatural power. And so now, walking and living by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit it looks different for each unique person. So like what, looks, what faith being lived out for you looks different for what faith being lived out for me looks like. It's the same spirit, but leading us to different works. It's the same character, but there's different actions that are going to end up coming out. Jesus said in Matthew 5, there's a couple statements in Matthew 5 that he makes as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about perfection. He's talking about righteousness. And what he says is, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on a few verses later to say that, be, he tells us to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So he's like demanding this, this perfection but when we stop and remember the teachings of the scripture, we remember way back in Genesis where it says that God, God and Abraham had, were having an encounter together and Abraham is given instruction and he listened and he believed the Lord. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's belief was seen by God, and that was his righteousness. That was his perfection. And so what we see in this, it was his belief taking God at his word, putting faith in the word of God, and that was the root of his holiness, of his perfection. Jesus isn't looking for this outward performance, these outward works. He's looking for this inward faith. That's the perfection he's looking for. That outward stuff he takes care of. It's the inner faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, faith is what we're focusing on, not the works. So how do we know it's there, especially if it looks different for, for every different person? 
Whenever faith is present, it's, you, you don't have to guess and wonder if it's really there. It is evident in the actions. It cannot be hidden. James 2, 17 says this, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied, accompanied by action, is dead. Faith moves. Faith lives and breathes. It does stuff. If it's there, you don't have to second guess it and wonder if it's really existent existing. But how it moves you, so what actions follow are going to be unique for every believer. It doesn't always look the same. And this is where I want to stop and spend some time and really have you ponder this question, what does it look like for you? Because faith in your heart is going to look different in action, what it moves you to do, it's going to look different than, than how it moves me. Our faith is, is rooted in God, and as we are looking to him, he's going to move me in this direction. Well, he might be moving you in a whole other direction, but it's still an act of faith. And that's where the presence of faith is evident in how he moves you. For Abraham, faith looked like leaving his family when God said, leave your family and go to a place I'm going to show you. And then years later, when he received his one and only son, Isaac, and God tells him to go to the top of the mountain, and you guys remember what he told him to do? Sacrifice your son at the top of the mountain. For Abraham, faith looked like taking his son up the mountain, planning to sacrifice him. And God stopped him, of course. He wanted to see his, where his faith lied. And for Abraham, that's what faith looked like. What about for Moses? Moses' mother, her name was Jochebed. For Jochebed, faith looked like taking her newborn son because all of the infants in Israel were being threatened and they were, the Egyptians were coming and killing their babies. For Jochebed, faith looked like putting that baby in a floating basket and sending it down a river by itself. That's what faith looked like for Moses' mother. What about the life of Gideon? You guys remember the story of Gideon? For Gideon, faith looked like right before battle was about to break out, sending home thousands of his warriors, leaving him with only a few hundred, and with those few hundred, arming them with clay pots to go to battle. That's what faith looked like lived out for Gideon. Sometimes it looks absolutely bizarre. And so anybody looking from the outside in is going to say, that's not faith, that's foolish. But that's not up to them because they're not hearing the voice of God to you. This is where, this is where the weight is borne upon every individual believer. No one can tell you what the Holy Spirit is putting upon your heart but you got to be in tune with him so you don't start hearing all of some craziness and saying, oh, God told me that. We can't slap God's name on crazy things. This is why we need the word of God. This is what keeps us rooted and grounded in the word of God. But it does. It looks different for all of us. And so no one can tell you what faith is going to look like for you, but it's the one that, who has been given to you as a deposit. The Holy Spirit will show you what to do, and now as you obey, that's faith. Faith now moves you. It says in Hebrews 11 that without faith, 
it's impossible to please God. It has to be faith that moves us. It can't be fear. It can't be doubt. It can't be our own personal opinions and preferences. It has to be faith in God and his desires. And he will show us what those things are. And this brings us to kind of where we left off last week when we read in James 4, verse 17, where it said, anyone who knows the good that they ought to do, but doesn't do it, for that person, it is sin. Maybe not for anyone else. They can do it because they weren't told to do it. They weren't told not to. But for you, when you've been given instruction, if you don't follow it for you, it's wrong. It's very personal. Remember we were talking about how God tells, puts something upon each of our hearts and as an individual, we're responsible for that. We can't, it's not given to us so that, okay, now I know the good I ought to do and I'm gonna stand back and supervise and tell everybody else what God told me so they can do it. No, no, he told you to do it. He didn't tell them to do it. They've got their own instructions from the Lord and you have yours. So don't try to impose your instructions from the Lord upon the people around you. No, no, that's between you and the Lord. Hear what he, has, what he is saying to you and follow in faith. So what does your faith look like this morning? Depending upon your answer, you might be affirmed by the people around you or you may be opposed, written off by the people around you. The Holy Spirit very well may lead you in a way that doesn't look like faith to someone else. It might look like silliness, but that's between you and the Lord. This is where discernment comes in. Discernment and being in tune with the voice of the Holy Spirit inside of you as he prompts you. The Christian walk is something that we're walking with the Lord and he directs our steps, not the people around you. This is so important that we are in tune with the Lord and we're listening to his voice. We're hearing his impressions upon our spirit and that is what's moving us more than impressions and voices and culture. It's the Holy Spirit that is moving us. See, to d- discern means to perceive by sight or some other sense. And we know from today's scripture that we don't live by sight, we live by faith. Discern is moving, perceiving by faith what is the right thing and then moving with it. And so we have to walk closely with the Lord, be in tune with him so that we hear what it is he's directing us. And so when he moves us, we can move not questioning, not confused, but we move in confidence because the Lord is not out to confuse us. He's not out to trick us. He's gently guiding us according to his perfect plan. He has our good intentions in mind. So we can't act according to the prompting or instructions of any other people and and then now put the blame on other people if things go bad. Every person, as it says in the word, will stand before the Lord. We will give account for ourselves and we can't be there pointing the finger at, no one else will, will be there. It's us, it's you, and the Lord. And so now we need to know what the Lord is telling you as the individual to do and move in that because that's all you're going to be answerable for. What is, he, what is he putting upon your heart? 
Some people will praise you for doing what the Holy Spirit has not instructed you to do. There are a lot of good things to be done. And if those aren't the things that God is moving you into, it will still look good. It will still be praised by people, but it's not the things that God has asked you to do. And so if we are being moved by accolades, by impressions, by trying to be favored and be a likable person, we're no longer living by faith. We're living by feeling. We're looking for that feeling of acceptance. And now if we look at it from the other way around, when we do live by faith, no matter how you do it, there are going to be the naysayers. There's going to be people who criticize and attack or oppose you for putting your faith into action or even telling you that you are not doing the right thing. And this is where you have to stand firm when you know that the Holy Spirit is moving upon you, then you have to know that and be determined in that and move by that faith. So no matter what kind of reaction or response you're getting from people, you're steadfast because you know God is in you, moving you into these actions. Living by faith means that we are moved by the unseen and we don't stop because of the things that we do see or the, the reaction, receptivity that we're receiving from people. I want to take a quick minute this morning and I want to look uh, as an example of this into the book of Judges chapter 4. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to read just a few verses from Judges 4, verses 4 through 9. And to give you a little bit of background for this, Judges itself is a book that is written about the nation of Israel in a time where they were uh, living basically free from any kind of uh, structure, control. There was no king. Uh, the people went in and out of living in sin and re rebelling against God and speaking against him. And then they would realize what it was like to live without God, and they would come crawling back on their hands and knees, begging for his forgiveness, and he would, of course, come back, and then they would live rightly for a little while and then reject him again, and they went back and forth. And there's a lot of bizarre stories in the book of Judges that seem really kind of strange or graphic. There's some, there's some violence in here. There's some weird things going on because of the time period in which it was written. Judges chapter 4 tells us a story about one of the leaders during this time. When Israel, living in its rebellion against God, um, would get to the, 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 the low point of their rejecting God, and then they found themselves lacking blessing, lacking provision, they found themselves being attacked by their foreign nations around them, they would come and they would ask God for mercy, and he would raise up a leader that would now lead them to victory over their neighboring, their neighboring um, countries, and they would have relief from that oppression for a little while until they decided to rebel again. Judges 4 shows us the fourth judge, the fourth leader that God raised up over the people of Israel, and her name was Deborah. And so let's read this in Judges 4, starting in verse 4. It says this, Now, Deborah, a prophet the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. 
She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, and Kadesh, and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of the Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. So Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I will not go. And certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. What's happening here is Deborah was a prophet and the leader of the nation in this time. She, people would come to her to judge their disputes whenever they had issues that needed to be handled, and they respected her ruling. Well, one day, she feels this word from the Lord. She calls forth Barak, who was one of the young men, maybe one of the warriors, and she gives him this instruction. She says, the Lord says, it's time to go and attack our oppressors and, and liberate our people. But isn't this interesting that when she gives him this instruction, he says, I will go, but not without you. If you don't go, I won't go. Now, either he was too fearful to go himself, or he, he thought bringing her with him would somehow have God's favor on, on him and on the army and ensure victory because God's favor is on Deborah. If Deborah's with me, the God's favor will be on me. Or maybe it was something totally different. Maybe he had a hard time respecting her leadership and her role as a prophet in the nation, and he wasn't quite sure if she was trustworthy. So he's thinking, all right, if she believes this strongly enough to come with me to the battle, then I'll know it's from God. But whatever his motivation was, he said, I'm not going unless you go with me. And she didn't hesitate. She said, of course I will go with you, but because you didn't have faith to go alone, you had to put a condition on it, now you're going to lose the honor that you otherwise would have had for yourself. So she lost, he lost that honor. It was going to be given to someone else. So the story goes on in, in, in Judges chapter 4, and what happens is he rounds up the Israelite army, and they go against Sisera, who was the commander of the enemy army. And as they go up against Sisera, they begin to rout the enemy, and they're just destroying them, and they're annihilating them. And then Sisera, before he himself gets killed, he hops off his chariot and he starts running. He bolts for the hills and he's running away for his life. His army is getting annihilated before his eyes. So he's just running cowardly trying to save his own life. He gets a little distance from the battle. You can all read this in the chapter if you want another time. He gets a distance from the battle and he comes upon a house of a woman. And he's exhausted. It's been a long day. And he goes into the tent. He asks her for a drink of water she takes him in, and let me read you a few of those verses. Uh, in 17, Judges 4, 17. Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, who was the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between King Hazor and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Sisera thought this was a safe place to go and hide. Jael went out to meet Sisera, and he said, she said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. Well, she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink, and then covered him up. 
He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there? Say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. What do you think she did with that? She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. And he died. He basically fastened, she basically fastened his skull to the ground. <laughs> and he just lay there. Now, I wonder how long he was laying there with his head pegged to the ground before it says, it goes on to say that Barak was on his tail and finally came to Jael's tent himself. And when he was asking, Barak asked Jael, have you seen this man? And she said, come with me. I know what you, exactly who you're looking for. And she brought him into the tent and said, here's your guy with his head pegged to the ground. <laughs> Which is, I mean, this is... Um, so he sees this, and immediately you have to think the words of Deborah are echoing in his mind. The victory will still be yours, but the honor will go to a woman because it was a woman just in her own house that took out the head of the snake. The commander of the armies was taken out by this woman who was just minding her own business and managing her, her house, right? This story I love because each person, each character had their God-given role. Each person was, was moved by faith to play a particular role in this story. And because they did it, the victory was theirs collectively because they fulfilled their role as an act of faith. See, for Deborah, it was an act of faith to lead Israel and rule in the courts. If Deborah refused to lead the people, refused to go to war with Barak and decided to just go home, the whole nation would have remained in oppression under the power of the enemy. It was an act of faith now for Jael to remain in her home where she was. If she wasn't there, then she wouldn't have been there to receive Sisera, the commander of the army, and then take him out. He might have escaped the hand of Barak. Jael very well could have. Surely she knew of Deborah and her role leading the nation. She very well could have seen her as a role model and insisted on being like her, insisted on trying to find a place of leadership in the community or advocate for the people to listen to her. But that wouldn't have been an act of faith on her part. That would be an act of pride. That wasn't her role. Deborah, in the same way, she could have shrinking back easily as, as a, a woman and the, the, the perception of a woman in ancient Middle Eastern times especially. I mean, even still to this day, largely. But in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, a woman's role was not to lead in that culture. But this is what the Lord put upon her heart. This is the anointing that God had given her to lead. And her living in faith looked like leading a nation. And she did. If she refused to go and lead as God had instructed her, if she had stayed home, that would not have been an act of faith, but an act of fear. So for Deborah, living by faith looked like leading a nation. And for Jael, living by faith looked like managing her home and being in that place. For every individual, it looks different. There are no blanket statements. We don't put stereotypes on people and put people in boxes. 
The Lord and the Lord alone has written a purpose and a plan for every one of our lives, and that is between us and him. That is not between anyone else and you. We don't put people in a corner, and we don't allow others to put us in that corner. It's personal. It's between you. It's between the Lord. I can't tell you necessarily what faith looks like in your life. It's not my job or anyone's job except for the Lord who you're serving, who loves you. He reveals his plan and intention for you. And the Bible, the word of God, is what grounds us. It's going to affirm anything that the Lord tells you to do. It's going to be affirmed by the word of God to keep us from going off in the left field and kind of doing our own thing and just putting a God stamp on it. That's not how that works either. The Bible is, this is our manual for living. It carries the message of hope. It's the truth for the whole world. Yet it won't tell us what to do in every situation. Instead, it tells us how to approach every situation and reminds us that God is with us in that we are not alone. The Bible is the foundation of, of what we believe. It's the word of God. We believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, completely inerrant. What this says is the truth, is the word, the living word of God that is breathing and moving and living today, feeding and nurturing our own spirit as we allow it in, as we take this in, it nurtures us and strengthens us. But you can't just take this, this scripture, open up to a verse put it down and walk away and and say, think that we understand it, we got it, we're good to go and run away. This Bible was written by a person, a group of people, two groups of people in different cultures, in different times, a completely different way of thinking, of operating. And so we can't just take the word that they wrote thousands of years ago and translate it from Aramaic or Greek into English and, then, and now think we understand it because it's in our language, it's in our words. We've only translated the language. See, meaning is tied to context, not just language. We have to translate from the culture it was written in, from the time and the context it was written in, into now what we're living in now. It's not just words that get translated. It's meaning, that meaning that carries forth and doesn't change. It's all here. It's all in the word of God. It's the word of God and faith in him that is going to continue to move us. Jumping back into the story with Jim Elliot, here is a picture of him and the men that also felt that same call that for them, God was moving them to that tribe in Ecuador to carry the gospel to that uh, group of, of men and women. When they went, it was uh, the year 1952. 1952, when they first went and began training in the, in the um, base camp in Ecuador, and it wasn't until 1956 where they first started interacting with that tribe. Four years later, they started interacting with them. And the way that they started going about it was this. They, were, they had this plane that they took, and that they would fly over the villages where these people lived, and they would drop gifts in, them, uh, in, their, in their area just to begin a, a favorable exchange. 
Well, after doing this for a few weeks, the people began to, to uh, tie gifts to a string hanging from the plant and give them gifts back. So it was now reciprocated. Now there's an exchange happening and there's a show of favor both ways. So they thought this was a, a good sign and now the, this group of men decided that they were going to set up a camp just downstream from the tribe, which they did. On January 3rd, 1956, this is when they set up that camp. And so what, when they set up that camp, they began to fly over the villages again and kind of call them, invite them in their native language, invite them to come and visit them in their new camp. A couple days later, they did have their first few visitors who kind of wandered over on foot just out of curiosity to see what was going on. One of them even hopped in the plane and took a little ride around over the trees and had a good time. But then something suddenly went bad, went wrong with, with this trip. And those people, those first, there were three people that visited them, went back and it stirred the pot. The rest of the tribe was very upset. And they ended up coming back two days later and with spears attacked the men and took their lives, every single one of them. What's crazy is that these men went armed with guns, but had promised to one another and to the Lord that they were not going to use them for violence. It was only with an attempt to, to maybe scare off and thwart off a possible attack. They had guns on them and didn't use them. Instead, they were there as ambassadors of Christ. They're not there to attack. They're there to carry the gospel message. But that, ca that camp lasted five days before their lives were taken by those men. It's amazing that those men knew what they were up against. They knew the possible opposition that, that really could mean even their life. It wasn't just a threat of danger. It meant their lives were on the line. And most of these men had young children, toddlers, babies. Jim Elliott had a daughter that wasn't yet a year old, was living at the base, the headquarters in, that, in Ecuador. And his life was taken that day. But they knew what God led him to do. And they wouldn't let threats of opposition stop them. They were moved by faith. And it wasn't fruitless. It wasn't without making a difference for the kingdom of God. Because even though their lives ended that day, that wasn't the end of the story for that tribe. Those families went home. That tragedy was heard around the world. Um, Life magazine wrote a 10-page article about the event. And as a result, awareness spread like wildfire around the world for evangelistic efforts in general. Finances and people involvement into the evangelistic cause around the world started to explode because of this story. And here's, here's the crazy part. Two years after this tragedy, some of the women... Jim's wife, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth. There she is on the right. And the pilot, Nate Saint, this is his sister, Rachel Saint. They went back. They returned to the tribe. And when they went back, they were received with favor. The tribe took them in. They lived among these people and continued to carry the gospel message there. And would you know, with that effort, revival broke out in that camp 
and people came to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior in the hundreds. It changed. It changed that tribe for eternity. And among those who came to believe in Jesus were the very men who speared their husband and brother. Those men came to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. That man in the middle is the son of Nate's saint who was killed. Three of these four men are ones that actually murdered his father. The one on our left, immediately next to him, his name is Minkaye. He took the life of Steve's father, Nate. Steve went too with Elizabeth and Rachel and lived among the people in that tribe. And he was raised with them and became family with these people. Steve's son calls Minkaye grandfather. The man who killed his real grandfather, he now is called grandfather because this, this is what God does when we walk by faith. He can redeem all. We don't live with this temporary perspective saying, I have to preserve this. This is only going to last so many days anyway. So let's make it worth something. Let's make it useful. I live with an eternal perspective. I'm not trying to protect myself. There's nothing left to protect. My, my, secure, my, my salvation is secure. It can't be touched. It can't be changed. So whatever he wants me to do with this, as long as I have it, I'm going to do it. Your eternity is sure. So don't be moved by faith. Don't be moved by self-preservation. Be moved by faith in the God whom you serve. Be sure in who he is. Be sure upon your calling. And he is going to make every breath you take an act of worship to him as he moves you into these uncharted waters. Look for these opportunities that the Lord is highlighting in your mind and step out into it. He can do these things. He can do these things. When we step, he's not going to unravel the whole plan one at a time. He's going to show one step. He's asking to take one step, to be moved in faith and submission and surrender and all of that and just trusting that whatever the result is, it's going to bring glory to God. However he, whatever his plan, how it's going to lay out, that's up to him. But I know that if he's put something on my heart to do, I'm going to do it. Nothing can stop me. No opposition from this world can bring an end to that. I'm going where he's leading me to go. And that's my challenge for each and every one of us. Move to this place that he is moving us into. Let the faith that he has planted within your spirit, let that be what moves you with determination and nothing else. Nothing else that you can touch and see and feel. That doesn't move us. It's our faith in the living God. And so for you, as an individual, a son or a daughter of God, what does faith look like for you? For Jim, it meant faith looked like going into that jungle. For his wife, Elizabeth, Faith looked like returning to the very people that took her husband's life and carrying the same message to them that he had carried. 
Jesus is the Son of God and he loves you. What does it look like for you? Let's pray. Jesus, we do believe you. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us. You've trusted us with an awful lot, Lord. You've given us your very spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us the ability to accept your word and walk by faith or not to. I just pray for each one of us in this place that you would give us the strength to walk truly according to your word. I pray that you would uh, sensitize our spirit all over again so that the way that you're moving us, we would be able to be in tune with that, very aware with how you're steering our lives so that now we have that decision to make to follow it or not. But give us the strength, Lord, to follow you in faith. Give us the discernment to know when it is you speaking or when it is the voice of others. We're trusting you, and I know that, God, you are out for our good. You will not fail us. You will not set us up for destruction. You will set us up to bring greater glory to your name. And as we glorify your name, there is our truest joy everlasting. So today, Lord, we are here for you. May our lives count for you and bring honor to your name. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.